Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. You'll also be joined right now by Ryan Divish. Ryan covers the Mariners for the Seattle Times. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Ryan Divish. Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me again. Well, so much for a peaceful offseason for you. Yeah, I mean, when you cover Jerry Depoto as a general manager, it's very rarely peaceful. I mean, this is a guy that once made a trade for Gene Segura and Mitch Haniger uh, on the night before Thanksgiving at 9 o'clock at night. Um, so it's never dull. I mean, I, I'd have to go back and look at the number of trades I've covered from him or roster moves. But uh, this he's starting to set a record this year, I think. He's, he's, he's really trying hard. And these aren't little trades. That's even the, the crazier part. This isn't just some guy on the back end of the 40-man roster. He's moving stars, and that's, that takes a little extra work. Are you surprised that this is happening, that this level of a rebuild is happening now? I think that all the reasons why they're doing it, I understand. I, I don't believe that they were. I, I, I felt like the 89-win team last year was relatively hollow um, and that, you know, going forward, that they weren't close to the Astros. Now, I think they were a little closer. I thought they were a little closer to the A's just because the A's starting pitching. But if you look at the landscape of the American League, like the Astros are in your division uh, you have the Yankees and Red Sox in the East. So you're automatically basically playing for the second wild card. And that's a lot to, to invest into with the chance you could lose that one game and be done. Now, the Mariners haven't been in the playoffs since 2001, but still. So I, I understood why they would do it. I didn't know where ownership would fall on this because they've invested so much money and because they were so close. And they're coming off a year where they've had the most fans since 2008. I thought maybe ownership would ask him to do it for one more year give it one more shot before they they uh, tore it all down. But when they really made no overtures to sign re-sign Nelson Cruz, I could kind of see the the trend they were going. And then when we met with DePoto at the end of the season, he didn't really have a clear plan as what he was going to do because he hadn't met with ownership. Then I knew that they were they were discussing probably tearing it down. Now, he calls it a step back. But you know, I, I just don't know that they're in a position where they can take, you know, two years and not be very good and be ready to go in three years or even four years. Well, they are desperate to rebuild their farm system, which up until this offseason, I think, was last in baseball. They first traded Paxton. That was an interesting deal. Paxton's really good. He's hard to hit, but he's not he's never pitched 200 innings. I don't think he's come particularly close to that. He's never qualified for an ERA title. They did get players back who should be able to contribute on their roster almost right away, so it was almost as if they're trading short-term assets for long-term assets. It didn't seem like a full rebuild was going to take place, but then it did. Were you surprised that they were able to move Cano in all of this? Yeah, I, I really was. I didn't think that there would be a team that would even take half of Robinson Cano's contract. I mean, you look at what the thinking around baseball is now, you know, what they did last year, how the free agent market shaped up the last two years and, and players not getting the longer-term de- – players in their 30s not getting the longer-term deals. I mean, if you look at it, essentially the, the Mets are taking on half of Cano's $120 million that's left. That's five years for $60 million for a 36-year-old second baseman. Nobody – no player on the free agent market gets five years $60 million, even four years $60 million. So that's, that's kind of how I looked at it. But at the same time, I knew that the and I didn't know how much the Mariners would be willing to spend or eat in this deal. But then when you just kind of look at it, I think that the Mariners I know some people are mad that they package Diaz that way, but the financial flexibility you get from getting out from under Cano's contract and just kind of the distraction of where he's gonna play and how he's gonna play and all this other stuff, I think it was just probably smart to move on. I don't know that they would have got more for Edwin Diaz on these own. I, I'm sure the market opens up a little bit. You attach Robinson Cano 
to Edwin Diaz. Only the Mets, maybe one other team could probably take that money on. But, you know, I think they just saw an opportunity. And once the Mets were willing to give up the the clinic guy, or I don't know how you say his last name, that was the, the key piece. I, I think that then they were able to move it um, and go forward. But in talking with DePoto, this, this started to take place at, before the GM meetings even, that they were starting to get approached about Edwin Diaz. They had been resistant to trading him. But I think in the end, they knew that if they're going to kind of start to rebuild or reset or set back or whatever, step back or whatever, he was their best trade piece. And this was where his value was highest. The moment he pitches another inning in this next season, regression is going to start because there is no way, unless Edwin Diaz is the second coming of Mariano Rivera, there is no way Edwin Diaz could, could have a better season than he had in 2018. And so I think that they were kind of smart to move him when they did. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Cano, he has been quite good, even with the PED suspension in Seattle. I know that they bought him thinking they were going to make the playoffs and he was going to be their big push and attract other free agents, and those things didn't happen. But just in terms of his on-field play, he did generate surplus value for them based on his war. And I think even with the $20 million that the Mariners are chipping in, they still got surplus value from Cano's contract. And what's interesting is not only did they get rid of him as he's getting into his late 30s, they did get prospects back for him, and prospects are valuable, especially those top 100 guys. So I do think that he is going to give the Mariners, he gave them good production, and now he gave them prospects. Good for him. Yeah, he was a quality hitter every time he stepped on the field. I, I know there was that one year early where he struggled with power. He made some adjustments, and he and he was unhealthy a little bit. He had the, he played, I mean, I've, I've, I don't know how painful a hernia is, but it looks pretty miserable. And he played with a double sports hernia for basically 65, 70 games one season. Uh, you know, there there are issues always around Robinson about uh, running to first and kind of the nonchalance in the field. But watching him every day, watching him working at bat, I really uh, came to came to respect how good of a hitter he is and how, how smart of a hitter he is. He really... Um, I think is still going to be a productive hitter. It's always going to be a question whether he pl- where he plays moving forward if he has to move to first base eventually. But yeah, I think they got the value out of it, and, and he did help attract Nelson Cruz on some level. Who Nelson Cruz signed the best free agent contract in Mariners history. I think fifty eight million for four years of high quality production. They just weren't in a position where they were felt like they were close, where somebody like Robbie's bat was going to help them. And they, they, they just had some roster issues. But I, I do think that his time there, I, it was important at the time when they, they did that contract. The Mariners had to send a signal to baseball that they were serious about trying to compete. It was similar to when the, the Nationals signed Jason Worth, and they you knew they overpaid. But at the same time, you're trying to send a signal to your team, to baseball, that, hey, we're going to pay money to get players in here and try to win. And I think that's what the Mariners tried to do. They just could never put everything together. And, and the farm system you mentioned about, it was it was starting to ride high a little bit for a while. And those guys just never developed. And, and they had some misfortune. Somebody like Danny Holton never never made it to where he was supposed to be. And then that kind of just was a lot of little things that kind of sent him into this path that they're on now. Yeah, Dustin Ackley, I think, is there, too, as a highly rated oh, yeah. prospect that uh, I think a lot of people thought he would have the same career that you know Matt Carpenter had with uh, or is having with St. Louis. It just never happened with him. Yeah, that's great. That's a great comp, you know. And then the Mariners also made two, you know, major trades during that time that would have supposed to have paid off in that as well. You trade Cliff Lee and you get back Justin Smoke, and he doesn't really materialize. And you trade Michael Pineda and get back Jesus Montero, who was an ultimate bust. I mean, those are when you have these pieces and you trade them, you just can't miss because it does set you back. And that's what the Mariners are looking at now. If if Justice Sheffield 
doesn't you know turn into somebody that's at least a mid-rotation starter and get a little more efficient with his pitches or if uh, these guys from the the Mets Justin Dunn and and Kalenic don't pan out this hurts you down the road because you've traded away a major piece and you need to have something it's like having uh, a top 10 draft pick and then not having anything materialize from it you're on the other side of this obviously but do you find it odd what the Mets are doing just in terms of Brody Van Wagenen he's their new GM he was the head of CAA baseball he used to rep Robinson Cano then he trades for his former client uh, he used to rep Syndergaard but then he either Syndergaard got rid of him or there was some sort of change in agency there and now he's trying to shop Syndergaard it just seems like he's trying to get all of his former guys I don't know it seems kind of unethical what do you think yeah it's a little odd like I, I was pointing to what was amazing about the Cano Diaz trade is neither fan base was particularly happy. You know, I mean, them, I think the, some fans with the Mariners thought, okay, you got prospects coming back, but a lot of them felt like attaching Cano limited their prospect return. Uh, and then you look at the Mets fans, and they were just bitter that they gave up Clinic because they were like, this is the best position player, uh, you know, that we one of the best position player prospects you have, and you don't want to give that up, and you're bringing on a 36 year old guy coming off a PED te- failed test and all this other stuff. So it was interesting. Brody is, I, I was very curious about the hire in the first place. I, I know that the Lakers hired Rob Palinka, who was an agent, to be their GM. But it's different in baseball because the contracts are guaranteed and because, you know, Brody Van Wagenen is like one of the, the three main agents in all of baseball. It's like it'd be like the Mariners hiring Boris to be their agent, you know. And so I, I remember the day that Cano signed. I talked with Brody for a little bit. I really wanted to talk with Jay-Z that day, just mostly for my own personal preferences. But Brody was the one doing the talking that day. And it, it just now to see him up there discussing this trade, it's just very odd. And and, and I know, he, I don't want to say they wanted to make a splash, but they wanted their first move to be memorable and they're willing to do it. And Robbie comes back to New York. I, I, I guess I get it, but I mean, that's, you know, and they can probably afford it, but it's still very curious. Like I, I we were listing the teams that be willing to take on Robbie's money. I mean, we didn't think the Mets just because we just kind of the upheaval they have within the organization and how bad they've been. We didn't think that that would be an option. The next deal that he made was trading off Gene Segura. Segura has been really good the last few years. I think I heard on Effectively Wild or, or MLB Network or both that he has the same amount of war over the last three years as Carlos Correa. So I, I don't think people realize quite how good Segura has been. And he wasn't under really a bad contract. But they did get J.P. Crawford, who, I mean, two years ago was a top 10 prospect. His stock has fallen because he's having trouble with the bat. And they got uh, Carlos Santana back as well. Do they actually plan on keeping Santana? And what do they see that they're getting in Crawford? I don't know if they'll keep Santana the entirety. I think he's got two years left. And and we asked Apoto, and he kind of said, yeah, well, we think he's coming to spring training. But if the opportunity is out there, I think they'll try and flip Santana if not right away in the off season, then, you know, maybe at mid break, but you, you can find teams that, um, uh, that, that could use a first base type. I mean, the Rockies right now, I look at them and say, that guy fits perfectly with them. Switch hitter going to play in the power of course field. And they're really getting nothing from Ian Desmond. So I'm sure DePoto's already shopping it. Maybe he's going to wait and see if, um, 
Santana has a little bit of a bounce back. You know, he wasn't great in terms of batting average. His OBP was okay. I mean, the OPS, not great, but maybe they'll try and do that. But I don't expect Carlos Santana to play the, the entirety of the deal. J.P. Crawford, like, if if the Mariners make this trade for Gene Segura, like, if they go into setback mode two years ago and they get J.P. Crawford, everybody's losing their minds happy because you get top six. I mean, he was number six, according to Baseball America, I think, in 2015 or 16. So, you know, he, he has struggled a little bit. I think the Mariners believe his approach plays, you know, his willing to get, to get on base, to control the strike zone. Talked to a couple of scouts. They felt like his swing got a little long this last year and that some he had a couple issues defensively, too. I don't want to say the yips, but a lot of people thought maybe it was just because he was so focused on trying to figure out what was wrong at the plate that it was starting to leak into the fielding aspect. But he'll go to Seattle. And, you know, there is no pressure right now. They're not going to be good in 2019. They're probably not going to be good in 2020. He can go out there and just play. And, and, you know, if he does struggle for 50 at-bats, you're not in the playoff race and you're not worried about how this affects the rest of the team. You can go out there and let him fail if you need to. If you have to send him down for a little bit to reset him, you can do all these things. I mean, I think it's a better environment for him uh, to grow as a player. Uh, you know, and so I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, a lot of people are upset about the prospect package, the package in return, but I talked with several people about this around baseball, and then even I was just uh, texting with Jeff Sullivan the other day from Fangraphs. The market for Gene Segura wasn't as good as people thought, and I don't, you know, everybody says, well, just hold on to him and wait, it'll get better. No, it doesn't. Teams that are contenders rarely go into the season without some sort of idea what they're going to do at shortstop. I mean, that's kind of a premium position. And you're not going to go into a season if you believe you're going to compete for the postseason. You think you're going to be a winning team with just a, a you know question marks at shortstop, and then hope you figure it out at midseason. By not trading Segura now, you would wait and run the risk of a team. You'd have to have a team have massive underproduction at shortstop or an injury. And so the Mariners kind of looked at the market and said, "Okay, we can just get this done now, and this might be our best return." Because also, that most of the teams, if you look in the American League. The teams that are contending, Red Sox, Yankees, Astros, even the A's, they all have shortstops. You know, and the A's aren't going to commit $60 million to Gene Segura. The Rays have a shortstop. You could look at second baseman possibilities, but again, I don't know that Gene would waive his trade clause either, no trade clause, to go somewhere where he plays second base. He is a full, he believes he's an everyday shortstop. And that's kind of what the Mariners don't necessarily believe going forward, that two years from now, they would have had to move him to second base, given his body type, some of the injury stuff he dealt with. So there were a lot of factors kind of uh, around Gene Segura and his trade value. And I just don't think it was as high as what a lot of people believed it was. I think Ken Rosenthal had this morning that the Mariners are shopping Mitch Hanniger now. Hanniger's been really good over the last couple seasons. Do you think they would look to move him individually or tie him with Seager and try and get rid of that contract as well? I, I think it'd be unwise to to tie him with Seager. I know that's what somebody had mentioned to me even at the beginning of the offseason, that that's how they'll move Seager. Um then again, once once you have Seager, and I think he's owed $60 million over the next three, you're just limiting your market when you're attaching him because not very many teams are willing to take on that kind of financial commitment, even half. I mean, $30 million over three years is still a lot. I mean, Kyle Seager, given what he's done now in the last two years, probably doesn't get $30 million over three years on the free agent market. It'd be very borderline because he's struggled so much the last two years. I think the Mariners might be better off waiting to see if Kyle Seager has a bounce back kind of year. He's done a lot of different things. 
this offseason and hoping to kind of come back and be a little bit more of the player he is, including just change his mentality uh, and, and, and find a, an idea of like quit trying to beat the shift by going to left field, but just hit the ball over the shift, which is what he did, did initially. He lost kind of the backspin and the launch angle on his swing. Hanniger, if you're going to trade him, you're better off trading him by himself, like trading him to if you're, you're shopping him to the Braves, somebody like that. Uh, I think you get more in return if you have that because he is he's on their minor league. You know, he's on the major league minimum for this year. And I think he doesn't start arbitration for two more years. So you, you, you're doing that way. I mean, you've moved one contract. You've moved two contracts, essentially, in Cano and in Segura that have saved you money. Don't do that with this one. Be greedy with your prospect return. Especially like if you're dealing with the Braves, who've got a lot of good prospects, and you want to, they need an arm, they need another quality arm. You go do that, and then figure out your way with Seager in the later on. You know, D. Gordon and Seager are perfect guys that you could try and trade in a bounce back situation, the deadline, or even next year, instead of trying to move them this year and trying to get out from under all of that. Seeing where the roster's at now, and there's still a lot of moves to be made. I think Jerry's going to make some more moves all throughout the offseason. But do you think that this roster can this or this team can actually get bad enough to get towards the top of the draft and replenish their system in a draft or two? They're still competing with the horrendous Orioles and the horrendous Marlins. There are teams that are worse than them, even with all these subtractions. Can they get bad enough to get near the top of the draft? Yeah, I don't know if they can get to top 10. I, I think this could be a 100-loss team if they continue to deal off pieces. I Just looking at their 40-man, they're going to sign some guys to one-year deals or whatever and try and piece it together. But, you know, if, if they move, if they were to trade Hanniger and trade Mike Leak and trade D. Gordon, you know, you're, you're looking at, and, and I'm certain that, that Jay Bruce and Carlos Santana will never play their full term here. Yeah, you're, you're looking at that. I mean, um it is. It's amazing because that's that's like we we're talking about with when you when you're trying to make these deals. How many teams in Major League Baseball are truly? In, I wouldn't say go for it mode, but like in a mode where they can win now, and you're taking on dollars or you're taking on a veteran guy to finish off your roster. Versus how many teams are just looking to kind of just kind of stay where they're at, save some money, and then continue to build slowly and incrementally. It's it's a it's a drastic. Um, gap there and I, I think the Mariners were always one of those teams that were willing to spend and try and go now they've entered that fray and I, and I, I don't know there is a ton of bad teams out there and and it will be interesting to see how far they can go to get to that spot but I, I always believe if you can get to the top six top six or seven you're usually okay I mean I think that the, then after that you can see a little bit of a drop but uh yeah, I don't know if they can be bad enough. I've covered a lot of 100-loss teams. I've covered three of them, I think, for the Mariners. So I'm expecting it could be a 100-loss team this year. Felix Hernandez has been bad the last three seasons. He was demoted briefly to the bullpen during the season. I don't know if that lasted a week or whatever it did. I think Paxton got hurt or someone else got hurt. They had to put him back into the rotation. What are the plans with Felix Hernandez going forward, especially considering the rebuild that's going on here? As of now, he'll be in the rotation. I mean, he's got one year left on his contract, $27.5 million he's owed. I don't know that anybody really wants to take that for a guy that's been a negative war player this year, um, our last few years, and can't stay healthy. So, I mean, they're going to pitch him out. I think they'll put him in the rotation and let him kind of go. And, I mean, you're not trying to, you know, win anything this year. So, it, it's maybe a nice kind of a capper to his career. Maybe if somebody, if you were to pitch well and somebody wants him and you trade him to give him an opportunity to be in the postseason, but he is really, 
it's really truly amazing how far he's kind of fallen. Um, I, you know, I've covered him since 2006, so I've seen him at his best. And to see him now kind of be a shell of himself and, and not really have an idea how to fix it has been amazing to see and, and amazing not in a good way. It's, it's, it's truly, um, it's just a reminder of how father time always wins and that regression is going to happen, particularly with pitchers when they log the amount of innings he has. I mean, I think Justin Verlander is the outlier in a lot of this, but you're seeing it with Clayton Kershaw as well, some other guys. The thing with Felix is it's never everybody always talks about his velocity. Well, he didn't throw hard for a long time, and he was still really effective. You know, he was never the '96 guy, '97 guy, even in his when he was really good. But what has happened is he just lost all command. He can't throw quality pitches. Um, you know, he can throw a strike, but it's not a quality strike. And teams have figured out that he has no command with his fastball. They don't chase that nasty uh, changeup anymore because they know that he can't spot the fastball. So they just look everything up in the zone and, and spit on everything that looks like it's going to be in the bottom half of the strike zone because they know it's never a strike. He's afraid to work back into the zone because of all the hard contact. I don't know if he can fix it. I mean, they've tried different workout regimens, different mechanical adjustments. I think part of it is there's a mentality there that he still can't get over. He's not King Felix anymore. He's just Felix. And so it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm very curious how he handles this this year because they aren't going to be good. He knows they're not going to be good. All of his friends have been basically traded away. He's like the last remaining piece from an era that you know, is going to be gone, and I, I don't know how he'll handle it. I know that he was very bitter when he was sent to the bullpen last year and very upset and angry at Scott Service and Jerry DePoto because he felt like he was getting blamed for that. But it was a demotion he totally earned in the end. Obviously, when you're a great player, you know you're great. I mean, it's hard to see when great players slip to this degree. I mean, a few years ago, Albert Bujols had one of the worst OPS pluses among qualified hitters, and it's just like, this guy was an all-time great. Felix Hernandez had a 10-year peak that was, you know, going to get him in Hall of Fame consideration at the very least. What is he thinking at this point? What does he think of his performance? He knows what he used to be. What does he think of himself now? Those guys, because they've always been so good, they always believe that they're just one thing away from being back to themselves. I, I, I mean, and it's a it's a supreme self confidence that I think a lot of people don't possess because they don't ever have the talent or the the um, the accomplishments that these guys do. But these guys have done so much, and they've always been one of the elite that they always believe that they're still elite, even when everything screams that they're not. I mean, and maybe that's what you need to have to make it <clears throat> this far in a game where there's so much failure. I do think, though, last year, I think there was a time in, in Texas, we he got shelled, and, and it was bad, and we knew he was going to come out of the rotation, and I'd been writing it for about two weeks that they had to pull him out of the rotation or that they had to consider it, which didn't really please him. But then after this game in Texas, and we just asked him, you know, what's went wrong, and he's borderline tears in his eyes, like, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. I can't understand why this is happening to me. And... And I understand all the reasons why it was happening to him, but he didn't understand it. I mean, I think that's the biggest probably regret he'll have someday when he's sitting back on his career is that he isn't he didn't maybe give enough to the game to to stay good for a long time. He he's not the hardest worker in the world. He's not the most committed to off season conditioning or strength training or committed to how he wants to do things, the daily routine and preparation. 
it's it's a sharp comparison when you see other guys that maybe weren't as talented as him but had to live and work as hard as as possible just to survive. I think Felix always that guy he could throw the, his glove on the field and be great, but when you start to get 28, 29, 30 years old, that doesn't work anymore. I remember Raul Banyas telling me one time is like if you want to prepare for 30, you can't start at 30. You have to start at 28. You know, and, and I don't know that Felix understood the regression uh, that was going to hit him. I mean, the, the lack of command is something that totally is surprising. But in talking with people, the reason it came is because if you remember kind of the big hip turn and all that stuff he would do in his mechanics, stuff you would never teach a kid, he was no longer flexible, strong enough, young enough to continually repeat that difficult delivery and get the command out of it. And so once he tried to simplify the delivery, it just hasn't worked. And and the the conditioning and all those other things, it it just you can't you can't sit there and make up for it. It's not like cramming for a test. It just doesn't work that way. And I think he's figuring that out now. And I think ten years from now he'll look back on it and say, you know, I probably should have done this a little differently. I should should have been committed to to conditioning in the off season and and conditioning during the season and all these other things. And I might have slowed the process of regression that I, that I went through at the end. We're going to shift focus to the Hall of Fame now, but just looking at Felix's career, seeing how Johan Santana did on the ballot, seeing what Roy Oswalt is going to happen to him this year, if this is it and there is no more improvement, if he doesn't find some way to surge or have some good years here in his late 30s, he's not going to get in. No, I don't I don't see see it. You know, he's got the one Cy Young. He probably should have had two. I mean, you can make the argument he should have won it that year instead of Kluber, but he doesn't have, you know, some of the Hall of Fame voters still really rely on counting stats. He doesn't have the counting stats. Uh, and I think that's another thing is like if he really wanted to get in, he needed to have some longevity and pitch till 35 or 36 with some level of effectiveness. But, I mean, the decline has just been so rapid that it, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So, no, I, I don't think he's a Hall of Fame candidate. I mean, you, I do think you have to rethink where you are with starting pitchers and pitchers in general because the counting stats, because of the way the game is different now uh, than it was before. But, yeah, I, I just don't see him being a, a Hall of Fame guy. Last year, I think last year you came on the podcast. It was your first time voting. You voted for Bonds, Clemens, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, Edgar Martinez, Vlad Guerrero, Mike Mussina, Kurt Schilling, Larry Walker, and Trevor Hoffman. That means you have uh, four slots available, assuming you're voting for the same six guys. Are you voting for the same six holdover candidates? Yeah, I think so. I don't. I haven't really studied my ballot. I usually take like three days retreat and just kind of really study it and read everything that Jay Jaffe writes again and, and kind of go... Um, from there, I haven't had a chance to really do that. I, last year I did it in Montana. I was home for Christmas. It was about 25 below. There was really no going outside. So I did it then. It was, it was kind of fun. I, I sat there and did it and it was my very first ballot ever. And so my dad bought this big bottle of whiskey and it was a really expensive bottle of whiskey. And, and we were going to open it and have a drink to toast my first ballot. So I did it. Showed it to him. We opened it. And I sealed it and sent it away. And then he basically criticized every one of my votes. So um, we'll do it. I won't do that again this year. But I'm going to study. I can't see any of the six leaving. I, I really can't. I, I I look at it and you know I for all the reasons I voted for the steroids guys in the past. I can't see myself changing it. Yes, Kurt Schilling is a loathsome human being on almost every level. But I, you know, his his performance on the field still matters to me, and I think that's kind of what I'm going for there. I agree with that. I think Schilling is possibly a top 20 pitcher ever, and um, people have talked about, well, what if you let Bonds or Clemens in? Imagine the induction speech. You know whose speech I'd be a lot more worried about is Kurt Schilling's. 
Oh, man. <laughs> I'd actually want to fly to Cooperstown for that. I was just there. I would. The whole town would shut down if he actually went off. What a disaster that would be. Uh, so you do have four spots. I imagine, obviously, Mariano Rivera is going to get one of those. He's There's no debate there. He won't get 100% because that's just not how things work, but he's going to come close, and good for him. He's the least interesting guy on the ballot because he's so obviously getting in. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd, I'd go with Mariano. Uh, I'd put him in. I'd probably. I don't. Did I vote for Mussina? I can't remember now. Did I vote for Mussina last year? Yep, you had Mussina on there. Yeah, I imagine so, Halliday will get a slot there as well. Yeah, Roy Halliday, and then you know Scott Rowland and, and Larry Walker. You know those guys are always interesting, kind of right on the fringe. I mean, I think I had Walker last year. I'd look at Rowland again. I mean, he's a borderline guy, but I'm not one of those guys that's like super. You know, and I've only been doing this. This is my second year, but I'm not. I've never been a thinker that you have to be so exclusive to all of this you know what i mean and so i I would definitely look at him as well yeah and even roland doesn't pass the sniff test but one of the ways i look at it is especially with modern players if you're one of the top 20 players ever at your position which roland comfortably is you should probably be in the hall of fame and there are some exceptions there but if you look at it just like 20 times 8 is uh what is that 160 and then you have, let's say you put in 75 pitchers, and that would include the relievers, and that takes you to 235. That's about how many people are in the Hall of Fame. So it kind of makes yeah. sense that if you're a top 20 player, especially a top 20 player who's not from the early 1900s or 1800s, if you're a guy who played modern baseball and you're a top 20 player, I'm, I'm inclined to think you belong in the Hall of Fame. And it's, and it's difficult to truly measure how good Scott Rowland was defensively if you weren't there. I mean, they don't have the metrics back then, but he was, uh, he was an elite level defensive player. It was it was truly amazing to watch him play. So Roland might get an ad. What are, where are you on Manny? I don't remember if we talked about that last year, but with the actual positive test, will you rule him out? Yeah, kind of. I kind of go with the if you have the positive test, I'll rule you out. I mean, it is weird because it's like you know, Seelig's in, and 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 there are plenty of people that you suspect were doing it in that era, and it's not like he wasn't going up against steroid guys. But at this point, I'd probably not put him in. Helton's interesting too, but I, I, you know, I'm trending not to do that as well. Yeah, I'm a yes on Helton just because I, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think it's at the heart of what we're trying to do with sabermetrics, with the whole movements bit about, is isolating what's in a player's control. And Todd Helton can't control the elevation in Denver or the size of the outfield and cores or that the Rockies drafted him to begin with. He had no control over any of those things. And yeah, he got an advantage, but he made the most of it. Oh, yeah. And he is, I mean, he was, you know, like I said, I'd have to go back and look those, the last three guys or so on your ballot, those are really difficult because they're all kind of, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of different variables and, and then I sit there and read it and then I go and then I, I'm, you know, you, you got to mark up the ballot. So I wait till the very last minute. I mean, the first six or seven, you, you're pretty certain of, but it's those last three, you know, that you're looking at going, okay, do I want this guy, this guy, this guy? And I, you know, I, I'll have to read more on Helton. I haven't had a chance as much. I mean, it's funny though, like some people uh, sit there and say, oh, you just, you probably just filled it out quickly. No, I agonize over this because my name's next to it. You know, it's like the, the, the MVP this year, you know, I had to vote for that and I know my name's next to it. And I don't, you know, I take that stuff seriously. If I'm going to put my name next to something, I'm, I'm going to take it seriously. This is Edgar's last year, and he's already picked up some votes. I think he's picked up three votes from voters who didn't vote for him last year, plus two new voters have voted for him. And then Adam Rubin, who had a ballot last year, and he thought he mailed it in, but it got lost in the mail on one direction or the other. His vote didn't count, and he's an Edgar guy as well. So he's already picking up a lot of votes. It does look like he'll get in. But would you have to leave town if you abandoned support for Edgar at this point? 
Yeah, I, I would. I, I I guess Jeff Baker, the former, uh, the guy I replaced at the Seattle Times, who's still he's a coworker of mine. He he was against Edgar, and that that was always a, an interesting uh, year. He would I think he enjoyed actually publishing his ballot, at, you know, and writing about it back when we had the Mariners blog about not having uh, <laughs> Edgar on there just to see the reaction. But no, I you know, and it's not like I. You know, like, like kowtowing towards the area I work in, grew up in. I, I believe Edgar is a Hall of Famer, so it makes it a lot easier that way. Um, and then like we talked about it last year, but I mean, I grew up with the DH, and so I, I just, I just can't. You know, I again, I, I believe that the DH should be in the National League too, because I can't take you know having to keep score during those na- those interleague games when I'm in the National League park and how what it does to my scorebook. But uh, no, I, I it's 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 a, it was an easy decision for me, probably because I've done so much work on it and I've watched so much about it. But yeah, I I couldn't even imagine not voting for Edgar. The Mariners fans right now aren't real happy in general, so that would not be a really good thing to do in the future. Yeah, and it's been a rough season for Mariners fans, but I think Edgar will get in. I think he'll come in around 80%, if not higher, and uh, that's a nice thing for Mariners fans. He's a great hitter. He's very deserving. and good Yeah, for, I'm, good I'm excited. I want to go back to Cooperstown. I, my dad, I would take my dad with me. Uh, he, he really loved Edgar when we when I was a kid, and so um, I remember taking batting practice in Legion. My dad would talk about Edgar. I'm like, dude, I'm not that guy. I'm sorry. I just can't be that guy. He's like one of the five best hitters in baseball, but... Uh, no, I I would I really hope to see him get in. He's just a really good dude, and and it would be a lot of fun to go there and one more time and and cover it. You know, and then maybe five or six years or whenever the guy decides to retire, I'll be back again to cover Ichiro's Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, maybe he'll get a, a spot on the Japan roster, especially at this point when there's nobody left to play anyway. I went to a spring training game last year. And uh, it was the Rockies versus the Mariners, and my son's name is Nolan, so he was very excited to see Nolan Arenado play third base. Oh, yes. And I was right, we were right behind the visiting dugout, so I was very excited to see Edgar Martinez, who was one of my favorites as a kid as well. Yeah, no, it's, and he's a good dude. I mean, he's just a really good guy. He does a lot for the community. I, I, you know, I, I'm excited. Larry Stone, my colleague, is writing a book with Edgar, so I'm really excited to read that. I've got to read a couple excerpts of it, but it's going to be great. You've been listening to Ryan Divish. Ryan covers the Mariners for the Seattle Times. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Ryan Divish. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Ross. I had fun.